Luke 11 will get us started this evening. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. Luke 11 and verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. You can't miss it if you read through the Gospels. Jesus' life is saturated with prayer. As he began his ministry... He snuck away from the crowds to pray in Mark chapter 1 in the very beginning. As he completes his ministry and completes his mission, on the cross he prays, Father, forgive them, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so the very bookends of Jesus' story in the Gospels, the very beginning, the very end, and then everywhere in between, like in Luke 11, Jesus is praying. It's one of the ways he maintains his intense connection with his Father and with his Father's will. And you see here in Luke 11, his disciples notice. They notice Jesus' prayer life, and I think implied here is they see, this guy has a connection with the Father we do not have. This guy knows something about prayer that we do not know. I wonder if they, like like many of us sometimes, felt an inadequacy in their prayer life, and they're envious maybe of what Jesus has. So they ask him to teach them to pray, Jesus style. And Jesus teaches here in Luke 11 and everywhere else in the Gospels how to pray, when to pray, why to pray, what to pray. So what we're going to do this evening is just follow along as Jesus teaches them to pray because we believe Jesus is teaching us every bit as much as as he was teaching them. So let's think about this this evening how to pray like Jesus. Three points, three ways to pray Jesus style. Number one, we see in Jesus' life that prayer is a habit. Prayer is a habit. Go with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. So the Gospel of Mark starts with a bang. Uh, don't have the birth narratives and things like that. There's no sort of lead up. It's just that John the Baptist and then very quickly Jesus shows up preaching, gaining popularity, doing signs. And as Jesus' fame spreads, uh, he has a long day of teaching and healing these hordes of people. And in Mark 1, he retires to bed at one point. But on the next day, he doesn't sleep in. This is Mark 1 and verse 35. Mark 1 and verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So here is an appointment for Jesus, more urgent than meeting more of the crowds, uh, even meeting the needs of of his own body, getting enough sleep. He must connect with his father. In verse 36, Peter and some others track him down. This is verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Now, when Jesus answers them, he's not put upon. Um, He's he's not wearied from his work in his early morning. I want you to notice in verse 38, he seems to have a renewed sense of mission after his time of prayer. Verse 38, and he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that that is what I came for. Seems that Jesus' prayer has rejuvenated and strengthened him, allowing them to continue on and preach to all these people. Go with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. 
So Jesus' prayer life is a habit, just as a, a matter of course. At every point of his life, he's praying. But it's especially noted by the gospel authors how Jesus prays at some crucial times in his ministry. Um, this is Luke 6 and verse 12. Luke 6 and verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, and then they're listed. So Jesus prays all night here, the night before he selects the twelve from the broader pool of disciples. He goes to a mountain where he can be alone with his Father. So if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, part of what that involves is learning Jesus' habits of prayer. Jesus actively plans to have a time where he can be alone so he can pray. He finds mountains and desolate places. He gets up early. He stays up all night. He sends away the crowds. He makes prayer a priority. He carves out time for it. Being a disciple means imitating one's teacher. The ancient idea of education was not that you downloaded some information in your, in your brain, which is what we tend to think of as education. For them, education was to educate the whole person, not just your intellect, but your will and your emotions and your way of life. And to be one's disciple would be to follow someone around and to adopt their entire way of life. And so the disciples look at Jesus, and this is what they see. And if they're actually going to live up to this title of disciples, they're going to emulate him. They're going to make the same kind of habits for themselves, invest the same time and effort in making regular prayer a part of their lives. Go with me to Matthew 14. One more passage on this point, Matthew 14. <clears throat> Matthew 14. Jesus is constant in prayer, and he doesn't wait until a trial to figure out how to do the prayer thing, which too often is what, what people do with prayer. They don't think of it because they don't, need God much, and then suddenly they get into bind and they, get, they find religion real quick. They start thinking about prayer and all of that. One of the things you see with Jesus is that he's a well-practiced prayer already. And when difficult times, the prayerful response is just an instinct. It's an outgrowth. He was already in intimate communication with his Father. So in Matthew 14, when he hears about the murder of John the Baptist, we find him shaken by it. He's actually unable to get any privacy for a while, which is what he's seeking. This is Matthew 14 and verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this about the beheading of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. It's, it's after this that he ends up feeding the 5,000 miraculously. In the aftermath of this, the reason he's over there in that desolate place is because he was trying to get away from them. But they all follow him. But I want you to notice down in verse 22... How relentless Jesus remains in his, in his pursuit of solitude for prayer. He continues to seek it out. Verse 22, Matthew 14 and verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side when he, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up under the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. I, I never really connected what, what hap, what's happening here. He's trying to get away to pray. He can't get away. And so when he can, he does. He, he is relentless in his pursuit of solitude so that he can pray. Jesus turns to prayer above anything else when he realizes his own time to die comes. Uh, he, he is, uh, he, he's praying for his own sake in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying for the sake of the apostles in John 17 in the upper room. And then as death comes even closer and as his soul is sorrowful even to death, all Jesus does at the end of the Gospels is just keep on praying. 
So if nothing else, prayer is an established habit for Jesus. It's something he makes time for. And if he doesn't have time for it now, and sometimes he doesn't, he makes time later. It's his instinctive reaction to grief and pain. It's not a last resort. It's not like the doctor says, we've tried everything else, all we can do now is pray, as if we tried all the real stuff, and then prayer is the thing we do when that real stuff doesn't work. Jesus knows better than anyone, prayer is talking to the creator of the universe. Is that something you put off? Is that something that slips your mind? Is that something you do as little as possible or as often as possible? Prayer is a habit for Jesus. And if we are Jesus' disciples, it's becoming a habit of ours too. That's what it looks like to pray like Jesus. Number two, prayer is a calibration. This is Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he gives them a model prayer. How do you pray? What kinds of things do you pray for? Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is directing us to areas of life that demand our attention. Prayer ought always to involve big thoughts about the God you're praying to. It ought to involve wishing for his will to be carried out in my life and in the world. It means soliciting his help and having our needs met. It means asking for his mercy, as we also ask for his help in being merciful Ask for his mercy even as we think about giving it out ourselves. Seeking his guidance away from evil. And I find it helpful to think of this prayer, and and all prayer in a sense, as a sort of calibration. As a way of reordering our hearts according to God's priorities. That's what Jesus is after in this prayer. In this prayer, we are confronted with God's greatness, God's priorities, God's provision, God's view of ourselves. And we cannot help but be changed if we pray the way Jesus taught us and and if we mean what we pray. Notice also Jesus intends for disciples to pray like this daily, to go back to our habit point. Give us this day our daily bread emphasizes the need for this every single day. Now, I suppose if you don't want any bread today, I guess you don't have to pray. But as long as you want that, then prayer will always be appropriate. Jesus-style prayer is something that connects us with God's priority. So I've got here about five five sub-points just outlining the prayer. I don't have them up on the screen. But just just walk through the prayer with me very briefly. Number one, Jesus says, disciples pray their honor to God daily. Jesus pray their honor to God daily. Verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Prayer reminds us that God is holy and powerful and good. He deserves our honor, which is what hallowed means, which sets the tone for our prayer and also sets the tone for the rest of our day. We are beneath him. We are his creatures. We are reminded that we must leave behind our intense preoccupation with ourselves and attend to God and his things. That's how the prayer begins. Do you see the calibration in the opening words? Prayer is about God. Life is about God. So, number one, disciples pray their honor to God daily. Number two, disciples pray for God's purposes to be accomplished daily. Disciples pray for God's purposes to be accomplished daily. That's verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
The kingdom speaks to God's great goal of reconciling men to himself through Jesus. God is king. This is his world. His will is right and holy. Our prayer is that those truths about God will spread among all men, that we and everyone else will live like God is king because he actually is. God sacrificed his son to accomplish this. It's the burning desire of his heart. And so we, we must learn to want what God wants. We must join him in desiring this kingdom to grow and come to the heart of more and more people. You know, it's, it's awfully rude to have a conversation with someone and only talk about ourselves and only talk about what we're interested in. If you just always do that, you're just kind of not a very good conversationalist. Prayer is where we think and talk about God's interests at least as much as our own. It broadens our perspective. It reminds us what really matters about the world, and that is that God's will is done in the world. And when our prayer ends, we're left wondering, if we've prayed this and meant it, we're left wondering in what ways we can personally help God's kingdom grow and spread the good news about Jesus. And so disciples pray for God's purposes to be accomplished. Do you see the calibration that happens in our heart whenever we're praying something like this? Which brings us to number three. Disciples pray for physical needs daily. Disciples pray for physical needs daily. That's verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to ask God for what we need to sustain life for the day. Now, daily bread is a phrase, it's it's sort of reminiscent of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Daily bread was a need God, uh, God met daily for the Israelites. You remember, God provided them with manna each day but he only provided enough for one day, with the exception of the Sabbath. Then he gave two the day before the Sabbath. But he only ever gave them enough for the day. He only gave them daily bread. He never gave them weekly bread or monthly bread. It was daily bread. If they tried to collect more than enough for the day, if they tried to collect weekly bread, then that would spoil. God wanted them to trust in his provision rather than trusting in themselves. What this prayer recalibrates us is to think and trust in the same way. To trust that God will provide every day. Disciples pray for physical needs daily. Number four, disciples pray for forgiveness daily. That's verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now I think Jesus is not so much thinking about financial debts here. In verse 14 he is explaining this verse. And in verse 14 he uses the word trespasses. What he's talking here is about sin. We need a place in our prayers to confess our sins and to beg God's forgiveness. Can we pour our heart out to God and admit our faults to Him? He uses a vague word word in verse 12, debts, and then another vague word in verse 14, transgressions or trespasses. But, But I think we need to say these will be much more specific whenever we pray them. As we think through our own sins, we won't just say, forgive us our debts. I think we should be saying, forgive us our pride. And forgive us our anger, forgive us our stubbornness, forgive us our greed. On and on we go with the sins we're struggling with. We're asking God to clean our slate because we are grieved by what we've done and the damage it's done to our relationships. He also, in verse, in verse 12, links our need for forgiveness with our forgiveness of others. With the, he links the forgiveness we seek with the forgiveness we give. He says there should be a daily opportunity to examine our relationships with others and and look for any outstanding balances. Am I angry? Am I bitter? 
Is someone else angry? Is someone else bitter? Is there something I need to let go and get over? Are there issues that need to be resolved? This kind of self-scrutiny is crucial to Jesus-style prayer. Do you see the calibration we get whenever we pray, forgive us our debts? as we have also forgiven our debtors. Disciples pray for forgiveness daily. And five, uh, number five, finally, disciples pray for help in temptation daily. Disciples pray for help in temptation daily. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As we look ahead to our day, we know it's not just bread and forgiveness we need. We need ongoing help in our battle against Satan. Because we don't think Satan will take the day off. And as long as we are convinced of that, we should probably be praying for God's help when we face Satan daily. This prayer calibrates us to think, what situations could I be in today? What temptations will I face there? Will I be around people who tempt me to speak evil in certain ways? Will will I be tempted to be lazy today or proud or angry? In prayer, we remind ourselves that we want to do what's right today and we need God's help to do right today. So Jesus-style prayer is a calibration. We are resetting our priorities to God. I find it remarkable how brief this prayer is. There's almost nothing to it. And yet it gets at the core issues between us and God, our most desperate daily needs. So Jesus-style prayer connects us to God. And if we pray things like this and if we mean them, It's going to leave us better for it. It's going to recalibrate us toward God. Prayer is a calibration. Finally, in number three, prayer is a test. Prayer is a test. There's one more element, one more through line in Jesus' teachings about prayer. Jesus talks about prayer in a way that I think makes us nervous. Makes me nervous. And and we can take all these statements he makes and we could either explain away what he's saying... Or we can reckon with it and perhaps along the way grow some faith. I want you to see if you notice a silver thread. I'm going to throw up several passages on the screen. Matthew 7 and verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is Matthew 18 and verse 19. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Matthew 21 and verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. John 14 and verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is John 15 and verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. One more, John 15 and verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go out and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Did you notice a common thread in these passages? In each one, what is Jesus encouraging disciples to do? The encouragement is to ask, and there is accompanying promise that you will receive. I encourage you to ask that you may receive. Jesus really wants us to view prayer as an opportunity to ask God for what we need. He's practically begging us to ask. And I think this makes us a little nervous. As great as that sounds, this makes us a little nervous because we know that God still reserves the right to reject our requests. God does say no in the Bible to people's people's prayer, and he will say no to ours on occasion. 
But Jesus is teaching us something deeper. God wants us to ask, even though he might tell us no. He wants us to keep on asking. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament, sort of about this. It's it's, uh, King Solomon, when God appears to him in a dream, and he says, ask what I shall give you. He's given this invitation. And so what does Solomon ask for? There seems like pretty much anything is on the table. It's a wide-open request. Solomon, we're told, is overwhelmed by the demands of the kingdom of being king. And so he asks for wisdom to help him govern God's people. And God is impressed by this because Solomon chooses wisdom instead of long life or riches or or power and dominance. And so he ends up giving Solomon not only the wisdom he asked for, but also the long life and the riches he didn't ask for. The invitation to ask is sort of a test of Solomon's character. I invite you to ask, are you actually going to take me up on it or not? And I think Solomon shows himself to have that character God is testing him for, at least at this early point in his reign. Solomon had it. He passes the test. Now, let me put a a mirror image of that up against it. By contrast, there's a story in Mark 6. King Herod's stepdaughter comes and dances before him and his guests at his party. And Herod is so impressed that he makes a remarkably foolish and probably drunken offer He says, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. So, what will Herodias ask for? Everything is on the table, including uh, powerful positions of the kingdom, half the kingdom, to be the most powerful woman in the world, perhaps. So she asks your mother, who uses this opportunity to ask as an opportunity to kill John the Baptist, whom she hates, for calling out her, her adultery and bigamy. Of all things Herod could have given, Herodias asked for a righteous man to be murdered. The invitation to ask could be seen as a test of Herodias' character, and I dare say she fails that test. So Jesus urges us to ask and receive, and I think it could be read as a similar test. What will we ask for? Will we even ask? Will we actually believe he means what he says? Now, James does caution us about this. James says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So God wants us to ask. But very often we do not receive. Either one, because we don't even ask. Or two, we ask only so we can spend what we ask for on our passions. Jesus says, I don't want you to ask God just so you can have lots of things that you want. Is the desire of our heart to seek the will of God or to seek our own passions? Prayer is a test. The invitation to ask is a test. Now, disciples will experience disappointment in prayer if we take Jesus up on his offer. We read Jesus' promises. We know we need something. And so we reach out in faith, and the answer may be no. We don't receive what we ask for. We question ourselves. Maybe we're even tempted to question God. All the same, Jesus urges us to keep on asking. It's a sign of faith that we do. Luke 18 and verse 1, the preface to a parable he tells about persistence in prayer. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He knows sometimes we won't get what we ask for. Even still, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Prayer is a test. It's a, prayer, it's a test of whether or not we actually think We can ask whether asking makes a difference and whether we will ask 
or what it is God wants us to have. So do you want to pray like Jesus? Jesus' prayer, Jesus-style prayer, is a habit, it's a calibration, and it's a test. And I believe if we follow him, we can be his disciples. We can access the power he's begging us to take advantage of, to pray and to ask. Maybe there's someone here this evening that needs to take Jesus up on his invitation to come and ask, to come and ask for, her, for his forgiveness, to come seek him, uh, the invitation to come and be one of his children and to follow him and receive forgiveness of your sins. Whatever your spiritual need, come forward now as we stand and sing. Please.